Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for the Word of God that as your family, your children, you brought us together. These songs, some familiar, some new, they reflect how we feel. They include some great truths about you and some great decisions to worship, to follow, to obey you. Father, I pray that you would draw us closer together as brothers and sisters, as a family of God, as a church, that this would be more than just a giant feeding, but it would be, Lord, a time where the family gathers together, considers truth, and we grow together over and in these same issues. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 6. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. And so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Many, many years ago, Martin Luther made a startling announcement. He said, I am much afraid that our own universities may prove to be the very gates that lead to hell. When I was a brand new Christian and I went to a local college in California, I couldn't have been more than two months old as a believer. I didn't know much. I was about to be challenged on my first day of school. I had a science teacher who asked if anybody in his class believed in God and believed in creation. Well, I raised my hand. I raised it up pretty high. Now, I was naive. I didn't know he had an agenda. This was all new to me. I thought higher education was fair. I didn't know it would be slanted and skewed. But I was about to get schooled. In more ways than one. Well, when I raised my hand, and maybe there was a couple of other students that kind of did this. You know, it's like, I'll move it up to like the shoulder, clavicle, and no more. (laughs) He then went on to berate the idea of special creation, 
creationism and went on to tout what I could only describe as a form of uniformitarianism. That history has continued uninterrupted, the steady chain of events, a long evolution over a long period of time, steady as she goes. Well, it's pretty obvious that the Bible would disagree with that stance. The Apostle Peter uh, would be one of them. Uh, Peter was not a uniformitarianism believer. He was a catastrophist. He believed that there were great catastrophes that interrupted the history of mankind upon the earth. And he writes about it in, and I'll read it to you, or you can turn to it in Second Peter chapter 3. And you might as well put a marker in Second Peter because we're going to refer to it twice tonight. This is the first time. Peter in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. That, in a nutshell, in a first century phraseology, is uniformitarianism. For this they willingly forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. There have been two massive cataclysmic events in our past. One is the creation of the heavens and the earth that was performed by God in six literal 24-hour days. It was created fully mature, But the second event was the Great Flood. Great cataclysmic event. The first, creation, took six days. The flood lasted 371 days, approximately. Creation gave us the first earth. The flood gave us what we would call the second earth, the earth we now see, live in, and enjoy. Now, the flood, and I believe it's a universal flood, not a local flood. There are certain things that are phenomena in our natural world that I believe can only be explained by a flood. For instance, the existence of great inland seas that are in different continents of the world. China has them. India has them. We in America have them. Our great basin. Uh, The shoreline is apparent. It can be seen. It was at one time a vast saltwater inland sea that got there somehow. It has since receded. There's hardly anything left of what was there originally. You could probably give it the name Lake Bonneville because all that's left is a little body of water known as the Great Salt Lake and the Bonneville Salt Flats. But at one time, the Great Basin was covered in water. Difficult to explain that without a flood. The fossil record is difficult to explain without the universal flood. 
uh, massive forests have been compressed by the pounding of the pressure of water. That's pretty easily seen because there are um, water-laid layers of sediment forming coal, and coal is found all over the earth in every continent, even near the North Pole and the South Pole. And atop those layers and in between those layers are fossils, interesting fossils, sea life fossils. So in Michigan, they have uh, fossilized whales. In Ohio, they've discovered fossilized sharks. In Wyoming, they've discovered fossilized fish at over 7,000 feet above sea level. Fish, 7,000 feet above sea level. Well, how'd they get there? There's a great sediment layer out in Nebraska, Agate Springs, Nebraska, that houses over 9,000 animal remains, bones, that have been pushed there by some enormous pressure, the pressure of water mixed with dirt that have pushed these things into the sediment. Then you have the strata layer, but in the fossil record you have certain fossils that are out of order even that transect the strata. So you can find tree trunks or mammal fossils embedded vertically through uh, supposedly long developing strata. They say over millions of years. They have difficulty explaining the presence of those fossils that transect that. Now, in the history of mankind, in over 270 nations or tribes, you have flood stories. It's not just a biblical story. You have that record in virtually every part of the world. From South America, Brazil, Bolivia, different tribes, different Indians, the Hottentots, those in Africa, uh, the Aborigines uh, in Australia, all the way back to the Gilgamesh epic or the Babylonian flood epic, which is probably the most famous and the closest to the biblical narrative. But there are 270 plus records of a worldwide flood that have existed through time. Now I wanted to read this to you. 88% of those flood narratives, 88% of those flood stories say that there was a favored family that was spared. 70% say that survival was by means of a boat. 95% say the sole cause of this great catastrophe was a flood. 66% uh, of these flood narratives say that it was because of man's wickedness. 77% declare that animals were also saved. 57% say the survivors ended up on a mountain. Many of them use the form of Noah's name, like the Hawaiian legend about Nu'u, instead of Noah, that's the pronunciation. Many of these flood narratives speak of birds being sent out. Many of them speak about a rainbow, and many of them say that eight people were saved. So you get the point. Embedded in the history, in the psyche of mankind, this was such an impressive event that 
The story was told and retold from its source, and we are about to read the source, or we've read part of it. And then it was garbled as it went out and it was retold and things were added to it or subtracted from it. But you have pretty clear evidence of a worldwide flood, both in the written record of nations as well as in the natural phenomena that is on the earth. Now, back in Genesis chapter 6, we're going to go through and... um, I read several verses, but we're going to go back over a few of them. And I want you to keep something in mind. I want you just, as we go through this, to tuck a New Testament verse, one you'll remember. Jesus said it in Matthew 24. He said, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. And we're going to see no less than five worldwide conditions that existed at the time of Noah that I think fit Uh, in the modern era in which we live, or will. First of all, an increase in population, verse 1. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. There's a book that I will recommend to you by John Whitcomb and Henry Morris. It's simply called The Genesis Flood. It takes the first 11 chapters of Genesis and dissects them from a scientific creationist standpoint. It's 500 pages, I'll warn you. Whitcomb and Morris took the genealogical record of Genesis 5 and the longevity that is written about in Genesis 5, the average number of kids recorded, extrapolated that out. Now, we're not surprised there's a population increase because people lived so long. And you, as a couple, could have lots of kids in 900 years. And grandkids and great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids, and you're just still getting started. So Whitcomb and Morris took the genealogical tables of Genesis 5, average number of kids, and said that within 18 generations, easily there could have been 774 million people on the earth. And that by the time of the flood, there certainly could have easily been 1 billion people on the earth, and perhaps significantly more. Now just think about that. You've got a couple of scientists, in fact you have more, that would say at the time of the flood there was a billion people. Do you know how long it took us to get to a billion people after that? After everything was destroyed at the flood? We didn't have a billion people till the lower to mid-1800s modern history. Some say 1804, the records are a bit skewed, but 18-something, we had 1 billion people on planet Earth. Now, at the time of Jesus, there was no more than 250 million people on the Earth. In the 1800s, now 1 billion people on the Earth. By 1927, we now had 2 billion people on the Earth. By 1960, we now had 3 billion. By 1975, 4 billion. By 1988, $5 billion. By 1998, $99, $6 billion. Now there's 6.7 billion people on the earth. You can see the exponential increase. It's a shorter amount of time to produce that many people. We have greatly multiplied on planet earth. There's a lot of people on this little globe of dust floating in space. The best estimates is that by the year 2051, 
There will be 11 billion plus people on the earth. How will they be sustained? So that's number one. There was a huge population increase on the land. That's significant because uh, Noah stood alone against everybody else who wasn't following God. Noah walked with God. He found grace, we read, in God's sight. Second, there was sexual depravity and an increase of it. Verse 2, the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Now, that doesn't refer to the lifespan of an individual being 120 years because it didn't pan out that way immediately after the flood. It took a while uh, after that canopy was broken up to reduce the lifespan. This is simply a statement that mankind has 120 years before the judgment of the flood comes upon planet Earth. That's the warning, 120 years of grace. And then God said, I'm going to judge the Earth. And there were giants on the Earth in those days. The Hebrew word Nephilim. Some of you have heard that term, Nephilim. It means literally fallen ones. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. There are three views as to what this means. It's a difficult text to unravel. In fact, whenever I have done question and answer programs on the radio, no matter where it's been, this is one of the questions that will inevitably come up. Who were the sons of God? Who were the daughters of Ben? There's three views. You can take your pick. Number one, that these were fallen angelic beings that cohabitated or copulated with human women and produced this freakish race of Nephilim giants. View number two, it was the godly line of Seth marrying the ungodly line of Cain, sons of God and daughters of men. Sethites and Cainites, not Canaanites, Cainites. View number three, that these were rulers, despotic rulers, who married women and basically were enlarging their harem. Those are the three views that are postulated. All three of them have merit. Before you discount any of them, at least give them a hearing and then make your decision. Now, what's interesting about the first view that they were fallen angels is that seems to have been the view of some of the ancient writers, even biblical writers, perhaps. It would seem that Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude in that little book of Jude in the New Testament, verse 6 and 7, alludes to the judgment of the flood as something that at least in part was because something that happened when angels sinned. I just want you to look. So we, we've already looked at Second um, uh, Peter. Let's, let's turn back there. Second Peter, this time, chapter 2. Just two verses. Verse 4. And five, 
2 Peter 2. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Let's stop there. If you have a New Living Translation, and you were with me when I read Genesis 6, it read very differently. I'm going to read it to you. Now, this is a modern translation put out just a few years ago. Genesis 6 and the New Living Translation. When the human population began to grow rapidly on the earth, the sons of God saw the beautiful women of the human race and took any that they wanted as their wives. Verse 4, In those days and afterward, giants lived on the earth, For when the sons of God had intercourse with human women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes mentioned in legends of old. The differentiation leads us to believe that the translators of the New Living Translation see it as angels or fallen angels, sons of God, that is a direct creation of God intermingling with the human population. Now, to complicate things even more, Did you know that the writers, the translators of the Septuagint version, the Hebrew text of the Old Testament written into the Greek text about 250 B.C., that the Septuagint authors translated sons of God as angels. In their translation, 250 B.C., they acknowledged that the sons of God meant angels, and here's why. Every time you read in the Old Testament that little phrase, sons of God in Hebrew, benai Elohim, it only refers to angelic beings and twice to fallen angelic beings. In the book of uh, Job, chapters 1 and 2, and Satan appears with the sons of God and they give an account to the Lord. And God says, where have you been? And Satan goes, going to and fro throughout the whole earth. So, the translators of the Septuagint said it was angels. Okay? You still with me? Also, there's a book that is called a pseudepigraphal book. Now, a pseudepigraphal book is a book that is given a name of an author, but that author didn't write it. So if I said, uh, this is from the book of Sally, but Sally never wrote it, that's pseudepigraphal. It's given a false name. Well, there's a book called the Book of Enoch, And though it's not a biblical book, it says, in those days, the angels, that is, the children of heaven, saw human women, lusted after them, and said, let us marry wives and let us beget children. And they're queuing off Genesis chapter 6. That would mean nothing to us at all, except that Jude quotes from the book of Enoch. So it adds some level of credibility. Now, some people have a problem with this. Um, how, How could angels appear as human beings? Now, we know that they did, Genesis 18 and then Genesis 19 when they go to Sodom. But people will say... Uh, Angels are non-corporeal beings, and even if they appear as having a a human form, they certainly couldn't cohabitate with a human, and, and, and there are some problems with that, and I can't quite unravel them. The second is that the sons of Cain and, or the sons of Seth and the daughters of Cain got married, sons of God and 
The only problem with that is, in all of the usages, as I mentioned in the Old Testament, in the Bible of the term sons of God, it only refers to angels, not humans. So you have a problem with that one, a refutation for that one. The third one, that it was rulers that cohabitated with women, basically uh, enlarging their harem, is because uh, some of the ancient Near East evidence, manuscripts, non-biblical, but other manuscripts, referred to earthly rulers, despotic rulers, by giving them the name sons of the gods. Sons of the gods. Now, I don't believe that that's the best interpretation of this text because the Bible never concedes to the secular language or seeing human beings as products of pagan gods. That's just not consistent with anything we read in the Old Testament. So you've got three views, and you could explore them further. All of them have difficulties. uh, But what's most important is this. Whatever it was, it was sexual, it was wicked, it was against God's order, and that was in part one of the reasons God judged the earth in the flood. So let's go back to Genesis 6. And notice it says in verse 3, The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, and his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Now here's what you got to know. The Holy Spirit was active, evidently from this earth, very active on the earth before the flood, wanting to bring people to righteousness and salvation. How? Primarily through the preaching of Enoch and Noah. They're called preachers of righteousness in the Bible. Noah building a boat for a long period of years, a plank upon plank, uh, telling of a coming flood. Uh, Enoch before him walking with God, and as the New Testament said, proclaimed truth to them, preached to them. God was very active trying to draw people to himself, but he said, I won't do it forever. There comes a time when it's over. And then there were giants, Nephilim. Now, the word means fallen ones, so it could refer to fallen people. Uh, All humans are fallen people, or it could refer to some special class of being. Again, you'll have to interpret that. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them, those were the mighty men, men of old, men of renown. Now, what was happening back then is certainly happening right now. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Just as in the days of Noah, there was this newly found sexual freedom, there was this transgressing of the traditional family, no matter how, what you want to interpret that with, one of those three interpretations, that was going on. There was a chief sociologist, Harvard University, who made an interesting statement about this generation. He said, this generation, this culture, is preoccupied with sex. It's now a preoccupation. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And it certainly has captured the hearts and minds of many. It's been estimated that in the average year, the average American will view on primetime television over 9,000 Sexual acts or implied sexual acts, 81% of those are outside the bonds of marriage. 
That's what we're being inundated with, a very similar situation to what was going on during the days of Noah. Let's go to the next one. In verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Third mark, third situation, an increase in wickedness. Now we're getting into the very mind of people before the flood, the antediluvian mind, the thought life. And that's where sin begins, in the thought life, the heart. And it says, the wickedness of man was great. The word wickedness in Hebrew is ra. And it's uh, saying the badness got really bad, or they went from bad to worse. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Berkeley translation puts it, human wickedness was growing out of bounds. Now, if you want a little bit of New Testament insight into the thought life, Paul describes it in Romans chapter 1. It says their their foolish minds or foolish hearts were darkened. They were futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They did not want to retain God in their thinking, so God gave them over to a debased mind to do whatever they wanted to do with themselves. A description of what was going on before the flood, a description of what is going on now, an increase in wickedness. Verse 6, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I made them. It's a precious verse. God was grieved. You know what that tells me? It tells me that the deist is absolutely wrong. God is not some aloof God that wound up the universe and then stepped back to see what would happen and learns as life goes on. That God is almighty and transcendent, but somehow desires an interaction and intimacy with his creation to walk with them, to fellowship with them, so that God can feel emotion. God can be grieved, it says. He was grieved. God can be hurt. The Holy Spirit can be quenched. The Lord can be blessed and made happy. Now, it's difficult to describe exactly what this emotion is like. Theologians have a term for it, if you're interested. They call it anthropopathism. And anthropopathism is describing God using human emotion. And to what level you can make that correlation is difficult. And for our purposes, we don't need to get into that. Just know that God feels deeply when his creation goes the opposite direction than what he intended them to go. And so he was sorry that he made man. And the Lord said, I will destroy the earth. At the turn of the 19th century, there was a book. It's still published, but it was a book that was published at the beginning of the 1800s, 19th century by Frederick Farrar called Seekers of God. Now listen to this little story. Seekers of God, at that time, was a very popular book. So there was a bookseller on the West Coast that ran out of copies. Everybody was buying up the book Seekers of God. So he telegraphed to the East Coast, New York, and said, would you please send as many as you have on the shelves to us? 
the telegraph came back. The telegram came back from New York to California. And this is what it said. No seekers of God in New York. (laughs) Try Philadelphia. Well, in Noah's time, Noah could have telegraphed, no seekers of God on earth. Noah was the exception. And that's why verse 8 is so beautiful. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, my English teacher told me, never start a sentence with the word but. It's a negative conjunction. You never begin a sentence. Actually, that's the best way to begin a sentence right about here. With all of that wickedness and all of that perversion and all of that, etc., etc., to have something that says, but, in contrast to that, there was a person who walked with God and who was upright and just. It's a, it's a welcome transition at this point. Noah found grace. See the word grace? That's the first time it's mentioned in, in Scripture. And uh, we talk about the rule of first mention. Hold on just a minute. I thought so. Nails are poking up. It's difficult to concentrate. The mind cannot retain what the seat cannot endure. And the seat could not endure. Noah found grace, and may I as well, in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, number one, perfect, the Hebrew word tamim, which means filled with moral integrity. In other words, what you see is what you get. He was on the inside, what you see on the outside. He was true, through and through. That's the idea of the word tamim, complete, perfect. He was a just man or righteous, perfect, complete, moral integrity in his generations, and Noah walked with God. One of my favorite scriptures is Second Chronicles 16. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the entire earth that he might show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect toward him or loyal toward him. He was complete, loyal, perfect in his generations, and he walked with God. There is a difference between reputation and character. With Noah, they were the same. Reputation is what people think you are and see you to be on the outside. Um, It's what you are in public. That's your reputation. Your character is who you are when nobody's looking. With Noah, they were the same. There was a man who died. He was a scoundrel. When he died, they found a preacher to do the funeral. Preacher never met the guy before. But the preacher got carried away in his sermon message and started talking about this guy whom he never met saying what a wonderful husband he was and what a great dad he was and what an awesome boss he was. Well, his wife was sitting in the front row and had this perplexed look on her face. And finally, she said to her son, go up and look in the casket and make sure it's your father. (laughs) Not with Noah. He was true all the way through, complete. He walked with God. And what what saves Noah and his family from the flood is the same thing that saved Enoch from the judgment and, and why he was taken off the earth, because he walked with God. And thus Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons. Now mark who they are. They'll be important in chapters to come. Shem, Ham, Japheth. 
You'll need those names because they will be divided up genealogically in chapter 10. And so I can abridge chapter 10 when I get to it. It's another long list of names, the table of nations. Know this. Shem became the father and the descendants were the Semitic races. The Shemites were the uh, Semites. You've heard of anti-Semitic. The idea comes from Shem. Um, they settled in the land of, they were the Hebrews. They also uh, uh, settled in a lot of the lands around the Near East. They were the sons of Shem and daughters of Shem. Ham uh, were the Canaanites uh, that inhabited the land of Israel before Israel got there. They were the Canaanites, the original occupants. Parts of Egypt and Africa is where the Hamites settled. Now Ham, you'll discover, when After the flood, Noah gets drunk and he's lying in the cave exposed. Uh, He goes in and sees it and broadcasts that to everybody saying, Yeah, you wouldn't believe what I just saw. I just saw my dad drunk in the cave without any clothes on. And because of that embarrassing moment, when he wakes up, Noah will curse Canaan, the son of Ham, and make the Canaanites to be the servant of the Shemites because of that event, which has been the case historically. And then Japheth. Japheth was the father of those in Media, Persia, um, Germany, um, Russia, the Gauls, uh, the Greeks, uh, some of the Roman tribes, etc. You just keep that in mind when you get to chapter 10. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled, verse 11, with violence. There's the fourth mark. Violence increased in the land. And we've seen how it started. Cain killed Abel. It's the first human murder. Then Lamech killed a young man for hurting him. We read that in chapter 4, and by this time it's now become an epidemic. We talked about this film Shattered before the uh, Bible study. When we were filming for that, it was interesting, I did an interview of a man who was the father of one of the young boys that was killed at Columbine High School. And we did the interview up on a hill overlooking the library of Columbine where his son was killed. I'll never forget what he told me. He said, I feel responsible for my son's death. I placed him in the environment of a secular school that taught him survival of the fittest, the evolutionary theory, the secular theories of man. And survival of the fittest, that the stronger will get rid of the weaker. And these two boys who killed all of those children simply took the teaching that was taught to them by their teachers to its logical extreme. In fact, in the basement tapes that he went through in the documents... That's what they kept saying. Evolution, survival of the fittest. We're the fittest. We will destroy the weaker ones. They took the theory to its logical conclusion and killed whom they deemed to be the weakest. There is an epidemic of violence in our culture. It's evident by what people watch, by what people will let themselves be entertained by. It's evident in the statistics, 20,000 people a year in our country, a murder every 24 minutes in America. That's what we're dealing with. It's rampant, like in the days of Noah. 
So the Lord looked upon the earth. Indeed, it was corrupt. All flesh, verse 12, had corrupted their way on the earth. And the Lord said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms, or literally nests, in the ark. Cover it inside and outside with pitch, something that would resist water and seal it. And this is how you shall make uh, how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be three cubits, a hundred cubits uh, shall be three hundred cubits. Its width fifty cubits. Its height thirty cubits. You shall make a window for the ark. You shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark uh, in its side. You shall make it with a lower second and third decks. So God gives sort of a blueprint to Noah, and it's obvious why. Noah didn't know anything about building boats. Uh, th- this was a huge undertaking. Nothing like this had ever been built. Noah didn't understand uh, the displacement of solid objects in water, that if you have something solid and it weighs slightly more than the same amount of water, that it's going to sink unless you displace the water uh, by, by uh, moving its weight uh, around, hollowing it out, so to speak. He didn't understand that. God, of course, knew it and just gave him the directions of how big it's supposed to be. Okay, this is how big it was in our vernacular. 450 feet long. That's one and a half football fields long. 75 feet wide. That's seven parking spaces wide. Um, 45 feet tall. That's three or four stories, four ancient stories, probably three modern stories. So there were three decks, it says, three decks. Space 15 feet apart. Again, Dr. Henry Morris and John Whitcomb, in their fabulous book, The Genesis Flood, calculated that there would be uh, 100,000 square feet of deck space in the ark. There would be 1.4 million cubic feet of storage space in that boat. Or the equivalent of 522 normal size train cars. 522. And it could easily accommodate um, 125,000 animals or 125,000 animals the size of sheep. Now some were bigger, some were smaller. According to Whitcomb and Morris, at the time of the flood, there were less than 17,600 species of mammals, birds, and amphibians that were on the earth. So you need to double that because you have two of each, male and female, for procreation and reproduction. So you need space for 35,000, but they had to have five of the clean animals because uh, 371 days after the flood uh, started, it would end and he would be out sacrificing to the Lord of those uh, cadre of animals. So according to Wickham and Morris, there were no more than 79,000 animals on that ark. And given its size, there was plenty of room because it could accommodate 125,000 animals the size of sheep. So it was big enough and it was stable enough. Though it doesn't look like much, as you can see from some of the drawings that were put up. It's basically a a large box, but it was stable. In fact, it's the same dimensions 
as many a modern either aircraft carrier or, or, or cargo boat. In fact, there's a British ship called the Dreadnought that is almost identical in proportion. Identical. There's an American cargo ship that was called the USS New Mexico. That it's not far from those dimensions. 624 feet long, 103 feet wide, and 30 feet tall. It's not um, dimensionally too far off that track. I wish I had a scale model. We used to have one around, a 1 to 87, like an HO train scale, that you could come up and look inside and touch it and see it, but we, we can't find it. It must have been destroyed in a smaller flood. We don't know. Okay, verse 16. You shall make a window for the ark. Praise God for the window. Can you imagine the stink of that many animals, a floating zoo for a year. And you would need a clear story window that would go, it's 18 inches all the way around. Something to collect rainwater for survival and something to get rid of the smell. So praise God for the window. You shall set a door on the side. You shall make it with the lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life, and anything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So a total of eight people went onto the ark and were saved. And what we see here is the eight from which the Redeemer would come. The earth was destroyed, and all of the things that happened to the human race that brought the judgment was all because of Genesis 3.15. Remember that? God said, I'm going to bring a Redeemer who's going to crush the head of Satan. So, you know, if the whole Cain and Abel thing doesn't work out, and it didn't because Seth became the favored child, now let's just destroy everybody. And everybody was destroyed except Noah because he walked with the Lord and these eight, and the whole race starts because of that. Verse 18 is important. I will establish my covenant with you. This is the first mention of the word covenant, and we're going to point this out in the Scripture. When you get first mentions of something, it's important. And you're going to find the word covenant is an important concept throughout Scripture. It's the Hebrew word berit. And it simply is an agreement. It's a platform by which God can interact with man. There were two types of covenants in the ancient world. One was called a parity covenant. Parity. Parity simply means equal. And and so this was uh, an agreement between two people who were equal. So Abraham makes a covenant with Abimelech of Egypt. That's a parity agreement. They were equal. One was uh, the king of a local area, and Abraham was a sheikh or a notable gentleman. They made a, a covenant that was equal because they were on the same par. The second form of ancient covenant was the suzerainty covenant. Uh, suzerain is a word that means a superior over an inferior. So if you have a king that reigns over a vassal state, That's that kind of a covenant. The covenant that God makes with man is that kind of a covenant. God is superior and makes covenant with people, and you'll find different forms of covenant throughout the Bible until we get to this covenant, the new covenant, 
which is an unconditional covenant. And I'll describe more of what those different kinds of covenants are. Don't want to overwhelm you in one night. We'll just leave it there and go on. Of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you and keep them alive. Now, this answers another question that people have. That is the problem of getting all those animals there. It's not like God said, okay, now, Noah, you're going to have to do a lot of walking, dude. you got to find all those animals. No, they're going to come to you. Just like God could, could put some little wire, some GPS chip sort of, just send a signal. For them to come to him. Now understand that if there was a canopy around the earth that brought the leveling of temperatures worldwide, like we have talked about and suggested in previous studies, then the animals on the earth would not have been as widely dispersed as they are in our day. They would all, since the uh, relative temperature of the earth would be the same everywhere, you'd find those species that he brought on the ark close by. And so those close by could come on the earth and the rest would be destroyed. Uh, Those would be saved and regenerate the earth. But they will come to you, verse 20. Verse 21, And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten. You shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. In Hebrews 11, we have a little bit of a comment on this. It says, by faith, Noah built an ark to the saving of his household. He was moved, the Bible says in Hebrews 11, with godly fear. The fear of the Lord to build an ark to the saving of his household. Now, in building the ark, he demonstrated his faith. He says he did it by faith. I suppose to get out there and nail one plank to another, to another, to another, day after day, month after month, year after year, and say, there's a flood coming on the earth, would be quite a demonstration of faith. Because as he hammers the first nail, I'm sure he's thinking, what am I doing? This is nuts. But then, when his neighbors would say, Noah, what are you building? I'm building a boat. Yes, we can see that. Now we want to know why and why it's going to be so big. Well, God told me he's going to send a flood. Oh, so God speaks regularly to you, huh? Well, I do walk with the Lord, and the Lord did tell me he's going to judge the earth. No, what have you been smoking lately, or what are you into lately? It would be quite a demonstration of faith to build that and to bring that message year after year, 120 years until the flood did come on the earth and those first, second, and third days of rainfall would change their minds. So thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, and so he did. I'm going to throw this in. This is the fifth condition worldwide that was going on at the time of Noah that I think is going on now. 
And we'll bring that into the prophetic picture as it was in the days of Noah. So shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Unheeded preaching. Unheeded preaching. Noah preached year after year and yet only his family entered the ark. Nobody else listened to him. There's not even a record that when the rain came and uh, the water started filling up the local areas that somebody banged on the door of the boat and said, please let us in. We believe. I'm sure God would have spared them if they would have. There's no record of that. Unheeded preaching. Preaching year after year. Nobody listens. Nobody wants to apply. Nobody wants to also demonstrate that faith as he did. Now, I have a question. I want to throw this in as we bring to a close. We're going to close on time. Praise God. Do you think that Noah theologically was conservative or theologically liberal? And please understand, I'm not talking politics here. I'm talking theology. A a, a, a liberal theologian is somebody who says, I don't believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible. I think it's all figurative and it's all really uh, just sort of, you know, it meant to mean something else. It's all an analogy. It's all a myth. It's all an allegory. Somebody who's conservative theologically believes that the Bible is the Word of God, is inspired by God, all of it, and is to be taken literally. Do you think Noah was literal in his theology when God gave him the exact dimensions of the ark? Or do you think Noah said, well, actually, that could be an allegorical number that could mean so many things. I think he was believing the word of God literally. I think he was very, very conservative in his theology. And he was going to make it exactly the dimensions God told him to. And thus, Hebrews 11 is fulfilled. By faith, he was moved with godly fear, and he built an ark. And so, as God commanded, it underscores that, so he did. Now, there's a salvation element in the ark. That is, the ark is a symbol of salvation, and I close with this. The ark was invented by God, not by man. Noah didn't come up with the idea. It was God's idea. It was God's blueprint. It's completely by God. It's God's design. Number two, the only way to be saved from the judgment, there weren't three or four different paths or ways. There was only one way, and that was get on the boat or die. If you're outside the boat, say, well, I don't believe there's only one ark. I believe there are many arks. (laughs) Go ahead and believe that. There only is one, though, and only eight made it. Number three, there was only one door to the ark. And Jesus said, I am the door. I am the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If I were to give a type or an analogy, I would say that if I'm to take now that judgment and move ahead to the great tribulation judgment, I see a parallel. Okay, I mentioned that there were two great catastrophes in past history. One is the creation. The second is the flood. There will be a third, the tribulation, that will then usher in the millennium, that will usher in the destruction of the earth and a new heaven and a new earth. So there's more cataclysm to come. In the tribulation, when God again judges the earth, 
There's going to be a believing remnant of Jewish people, 144,000. They will be spared through the tribulation period, sealed by God, the Bible says, on their foreheads and protected during the great tribulation period, the final three and a half years. That believing Jewish remnant, 144,000. Believers, according to the way I read the Bible, won't be here for the great tribulation. Some of you believe they will be and that we will go through the tribulation. And I believe that you have the right to be wrong. You can believe whatever you want. (laughs) doesn't happen to be right. But that believers will be raptured before the tribulation period off the earth. Just like Noah, I see him representing the Jewish remnant preserved during the time of the flood. But there was someone who was raptured before that, and his name was Enoch. He walked with God, and he was not, for the Lord took him. And what the Lord did in the past, I believe the Lord will do in the future, and take those who walk with him, who are his children, saved by grace, by the blood of Christ. So salvation is is up to us now. He says there is the way, judgment is coming, it can be escaped, but you got to get on board. And you can only come through one door, and that's through Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can consider these things, read through them, consider different options, especially when we are uncertain as to its meaning. But the rest we are certain as to its meaning. There were things that were going on on the earth that caused your grace, your love, your patience at that time on earth to be exhausted and forced your hand of judgment. That will come again. You are so patient, you are so gracious, but your time of judgment, as it came, will come. And Father, I pray that even as Noah got that message out through his actions and through his words, a preacher of righteousness. I pray, Lord, that our words, our witness would not go unheeded. I pray that you'd give us a heart for the lost. I pray, Lord, that we would reach out, engage in conversations, and by our words and by our lifestyles, bring many into the ark of the salvation that comes through Christ. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.